Hey, Alabaster Jar listeners, it's Lynn here. Before we get into our episode today, I wanted to let you know about an opportunity. You've probably experienced, if you've listened to our podcast, we try and piece together a picture of women in the biblical world and in the early church. And on our podcast, we often just scratch the surface. That's why I'm teaching women in the early church a course here at Northern. It's one of the highlights of my job, and I'd love for you to consider joining me. That's right, on Tuesday, August 30th, from 10 a.m. to noon Central Time, the admissions team at Northern is hosting what we call a Taste of Northern. It's an opportunity for you to get a taste of what it's like to be in a seminary class. So I hope you'll join me. I know it can feel intimidating to think about formally pursuing an education. That's why we wanted to just show you what it's like to give you a taste of how Northern and seminary could fit into your life. So sign up today at seminary.edu backslash taste. Again, that's seminary.edu backslash taste. And I'd love to get to see you in class on August 30th from 10 a.m. to noon Central Time. Okay, now let's get to our conversation in the Alabaster Jar. Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. On today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Coick, is joined by Caitlin Beattie. Caitlin is a writer, journalist, editor, and keen observer of trends in the American church. After studying theology at Oxford University, she went on to serve as the youngest and first female managing editor of Christianity Today magazine. She has written for The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, and The New York Times on topics such as politics, gender, and theology. She has commented on faith and culture for CNN, ABC, NPR, Associated Press, Religion News Service, and the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Caitlin is the author of A Woman's Place, A Christian Vision for Your Calling in the Office, the Home, and the World, and her most recent book released this month titled Celebrities for Jesus. Hi, Caitlin. Thanks so much for coming on the Alabaster Jar. Thanks so much for having me, Lynn. It's good to be with you. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, we've known each other for a couple of years now, your time working at Christianity Today and I think I first got to know you through your book, A Woman's Place, which came out in 2016. And we were talking a lot about when you did your work at CT and helping to launch hermeneutics, all mm-hmm. of that. We, so we kind of knew each other from that area. But I'd love to, to just kind of hear some of your story as to how you, how you decided to write A Woman's Place, which looks Mm. at women in the church and in the workplace, and how you kind of then landed in in Christianity Today and as an author. Yeah, just kind of Mm -hmm. a bit of your backstory before we dive into your new book, which I'm so excited to talk about. Sure. I was at Christianity Today for almost a decade and started my career there, came in as a 23-year-old. And the longer that I was at CT, I was looking for resources to help me 
understand the meaning of my work. Of course, faith and work integration, lots of resources on that, but I really wanted something that spoke to some of the unique challenges that women face in a lot of workplaces and how those questions touch on really on questions of identity and who God has made us to be. So this is probably true for a lot of book authors, but I wrote the book that I needed myself. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yes, yes. And just coming back to this core truth that as God's full image bearers, we are like God in our call and capacity to work to create and shape culture from kind of the highest echelons of cultural power to very quotidian daily responsibilities and tasks. And so I think a lot of Christian women, I experience this feeling like I'm not married. I don't have children. I've heard on and off over the years that might be my highest calling. What if that is not in the cards for me? Does God value my daily work? Does he see my daily work? How does it fit into his kingdom purposes? And just got to connect with so many women in the course of writing that book as well, hearing from different perspectives, women from different life stages, some women who, like me, had been single and really invested full-time in their work, some women who were navigating the tensions of kind of dual motherhood and career at the same time, some women who stepped out of the workforce for a period and went back. So I really enjoyed the multiplicity of callings that that book was able to bring out. My new book, perhaps similar to A Woman's Place, also came out of my time at Christianity Today, but took me in a pretty different direction. As a journalistic publication founded by Billy Graham, CT is often responsible for reporting bad news about the church, understanding that we need to tell the full truth about the church in order for it to grow and heal and change. And in my time at CT, it happened multiple times where our staff would get a tip about a famous Christian leader, allegations against him or her, whether like financial impropriety or sexual impropriety. And the more tips that we got about these beloved Christian leaders, household names for a lot of Christians, I started to think, is there something about celebrity dynamic that actually is fueling abuses of power and why maybe more broadly, why are so many of us attached to these celebrity Christian figures? What does that say about us? What does that say about how we think about Christian influence and the centrality of the church? Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it's kind of interesting that your first book, A Woman's Place, kind of talks about how do we understand our calling and vocation? And then Celebrities for Jesus is oh my, we can really get this wrong, you know? And it's sort of a how not to do it book Mm. as opposed to the first one where, okay, let's explore calling and vocation and the joys of work. It's a fantastic book, Celebrities for Jesus. It is, it's a page turner. For me, I kind of binged on it. I thought, oh, I'll just read a little bit. And then I kept going and then I kept (laughs) going and then I kept going. And uh, I think our listeners will too. It's incredibly well-written and you tackle really in a straightforward kind of authentic way. Hey, this is stuff that's going on. So as we move into the book, and and let me just say also 
this is this comes from your space at growing up and I mean you talk about your own your own journey in this as well. So this is mm-hmm. not a gotcha book to me. I di- didn't read that way at all. This was mm-hmm. exploring. I felt like I was exploring with you some of the just your own history which I share in some measure in mm-hmm. being an evangelical for a number of years. But before we get too much into it, I want to I would love for you to just define what you mean by celebrity and contrast that with the word fame. I think that's a real help in the in the book, how you are really trying to tease out what celebrity means. Yeah. First, I am so grateful to hear that the book is a page turner. <laughs> that's something that, I'll, I'll, you know, anybody who writes a book, wow, people are actually enjoying this. It's not just a slog. And I also am just really appreciative that you you hear or see in my writing that it isn't a gotcha book. I try to tell the truth as straightforward as I can, but also recognizing that like these are my people. These this is the faith community that raised me and shaped me. And I feel so I feel implicated in this as a believer as much as kind of a journalist trying to take a more objective approach. So thank you for reading the book. I really appreciate that. So I would argue that fame and celebrity are connected. Fame is something that we've in any time, culture, age, we've all there have always been people whose name or successes t- kind of take them beyond a particular time and place. Often historically, this was about either being born into a particular family, bearing the family name, military, political prowess, conquest. And fame in and of itself is not bad. I think a lot of people whose names we know and recognize and even people we celebrate, they weren't setting out to be famous. But because of their acts of goodness, of creativity, working toward justice for other people, we know their work and we know their name because of good things that they've done. And it's fine and good to celebrate other people, right? Celebrity is trickier and I would argue a little more dangerous in that it is one fueled by mass media. So it is a distinctly modern phenomenon fueled by the rise of everything from newspaper, the printed page to radio, television. Now we have social media, which just adds (laughs) jet fuel to the quest for celebrity. And mass media has a way of bringing us into contact with people who we'll never know, but we experience because of the wizardry of mass media an experience of intimacy. And I say that intimacy is false. It's an illusion. But when you hear someone's voice and see their face, you feel like you know them or you attach to them in some way. I And I just found that such a brilliant insight that the this lie of celebrity, which is that we feel like we're intimate with them, but that's just not the case. And yeah, that that was fascinating. And and it rang really true to me. But you also, and we'll say a lot more about celebrities, but before we move on that, I also appreciated you talked about what we might call the enablers, those of us who tolerate 
Mm. Like the narcissism, the bullying, the celebrity is above the law kind of thing, right? Or above the rules. But we put up with that. And yeah, and I'm so glad you brought that out. What do we do? First of all, why is that the case? You talk about that in your book. Why is that the case? And yeah, why are we feeding this beast? (laughs) Yeah, there's there are a lot of reasons. One, I would say and many other writers and analysts have kind of pointed this out, the rise of the power of individuals over institutions. So when I became an evangelical Christian as a young teenager, I we were attending a United Methodist church. So we were part of the institution of the local church. But how I understood my own Christian identity had nothing to do with being a United Methodist. It had everything to do with buying and consuming books and music from Christian celebrities. And I will always be a fan of Amy Grant. I will never apologize for that. (laughs) But my Christian identity was formed by my attachment to specific individuals. Can I tell you a story real quick as you go in with that? Because I I, I hope it's about Amy Grant. It's not. No. Although (laughs) I also very much appreciate her. It goes back even further. And I'll reveal my age here, but Keith Green was one of the earliest Christian rock, although I don't know if you'd call it that, contemporary music kind of people. And I remember hearing him at least two times in concert, but his concerts were free. They had an offering Mm -hmm. and um, he was playing a grand piano up on a stage in an auditorium of a large Christian high school about an hour from where I grew up in Pennsylvania. And at some point in the show, so to speak, two or three people got up with their cameras. These were real cameras, no iPhones, Mm -hmm. (laughs) actual cameras that went up and tried to take a picture of him while he was singing. And he stopped and he looked at them and not in a rude way, but just said, I And I don't even know if he said the word celebrity, but he said, do not take my picture. That is not what we're here for. We're here to Mm -hmm. worship God. Mm -hmm. And that obviously, that moment has stuck with me. And it was in the back of my mind as I was reading through your book that at that point, at the very earliest start of the Christian music, we didn't pay money to go. It was a love offering. And there wasn't a lot of stuff to buy. And you didn't take photos of the guy mm. or the woman on this on the stage. Anyway, yeah. That's actually really powerful because you see in that moment Keith Green kind of recognizing the temptation of right. right. how good it might feel to be the kind of person that other people want to take a photo of or to take a photo with and he's saying no. This is not about me, right? This right. is about the music. This is about being together. This is about worshiping God, right? But I think Going back to your question about why do we attach to these celebrities and especially unhealthy people <laughs> in positions of leadership, I think we we gain something in our own sense of importance or especially ministry importance from our connection to this person. There's something that we are getting in terms of a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, a sense of being in an inner circle. Yeah. Being attached to someone who others perceive to be powerful. And honestly, a lot of us derive some sort of power through our connection to that person. So I talk about Mm -hmm. the book publishing industry, which I bet we'll 
talk about. I do have, yeah, I, yeah, I do have that down on my list that I hope we get to. <laughs> and how your attachment to a famous Christian leader, if you mention that in your book proposal, publishers might think, oh, if that person can promote or endorse this book, maybe it can sell more. So we, sometimes it's an in, imprimatur. Like if I'm attached to this famous pastor and other people like and trust this famous pastor, maybe they'll open doors for me too. Yes. Yeah. We not just derive a sense of purpose, but we're benefiting from a kind of proximity to their power as well. Yeah. So, so we gain. Yeah. And we gain by not holding them accountable. It's really hard, I imagine, to be in be part of an organization or ministry where you see the top leader, the most famous leader kind of flouting normal means of accountability or doing things that are ethically murky. But how hard is it to speak up in that moment? Because you sense I will lose the mitigated power that I've gained by being here if I speak up. And if I speak up and my 10 friends who work with me Mm -hmm. They also, if I kill the golden goose, we all, or the goose that lays the golden egg, we all end up losing, losing our gold. And so you don't just, you're not just a whistleblower. You also can lose friends. There's tremendous mm -hmm. cost mm -hmm. for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about celebrity and fame. You also contrast icons and idols. Mm. I thought that was also an incredibly helpful way of for me to wrap my mind around what is this celebrity culture that we live in. So what is an icon and how is that different than? In a very basic Christian sense, we are all icons. We all bear God's image. And so in our lives, in our persons, in our the work of our hands, we are all called to reflect the glory and brilliance of our creator and be a conduit that the ultimate goal in is to give glory to God. <laughs> and we hope that through our work, if we are prioritizing things properly, that our work will point people to the goodness and glory of God. So we're all like living icons. Right, right. Following after Christ who is the image of the invisible God, as Colossians tells us. Absolutely. And then we have Christ in us. Then right. we have idol. <laughs> yes. So an idol is something that's so close to the original good goodness, right? But the glory stops with us, ends up replacing God as the focal point of glory, as something yeah. that replaces God. And so we think about, I'm going to try to think of an example, Olympic gymnasts. I'll try to watch the Olympics every four years and just you just marvel at the physical power and feats of these athletes who've been training for years and years for this moment. And in that moment, you can, you, I hope when I'm watching, I'm ultimately thinking about how amazing it is that God gave us these bodies to do these amazing, incredible things. Like the ultimate glory in those moments, watching these Olympians is for God. And then you bring in things like endorsements and the whole commerce around Olympians. And then we start to forget that actually everything that they're able to do ultimately derives from their creator. But we stop and we fixate on them and they become God-like, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. 
Yeah. And so it, it really, the difference between icons and idols in some sense touches on our own heart posture. Have we properly kept God as the center of the recipient of glory or have we replaced in our hearts and our affections? Have we replaced God with created things or created with other people? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. As I was thinking of this, there's a statement in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter five, where he talks about greed, which is idolatry. And that was, I was thinking about that as I was reading your book and you were contrasting these things because celebrity, it, being a celebrity is a pretty good gig. I mm-hmm. mean, you often, a celebrity is typically wealthy, right? They've mm-hmm. got resources and mm-hmm. sometimes even flaunt them. And sometimes they're expected to flaunt them. Mm-hmm. So that idol and greed and celebrity, it, it, it coalesced for me. It, it, that mm. made just a lot of sense. One of the things that you talk about and these are my words, the media, or not, they aren't my words, but it's a phrase that I've heard before. The medium is the message and how you make the point so well in the book that the medium can actually change the message. And then that's part of why you're so concerned about the celebrity culture, because it actually can, it's not just damaging to us non-celebrities and to the Mm. celebrities that we promote, but it actually is really a problem for the gospel, the actual mm-hmm. message. So what, why is that? Why is that the case? Why is it mm. so important that we think about the medium? Yeah, of course, these insights go back really to the dawn of television. Billy Graham and other early evangelists, I should say, one of the words that's really stuck with me and I think accurately describing a lot of evangelicals is we're pragmatists. Mm -hmm. So being willing and able to use every tool possible at our disposal to share the gospel. And Graham and other early evangelists saw the power of radio and television and now all other forms of media to communicate the gospel to far more people then could potentially attend a Graham crusade, right? And the rationale is, why wouldn't we use these tools? Like, God has allowed us to have these tools to spread the gospel far and wide, and we should capitalize on that. And I, I say that, on one hand, really appreciating the passion to share the gospel with as many people as possible, and then also just recognizing that you can't, simply adopt a tool. There is no neutral tool. And I think that's especially true when we're thinking about mass media and its sheer power. And so when we're watching Graham on television or today's evangelists preaching on TikTok or Instagram, how does that medium affect how we hear their message? And I think while we're on the topic of TikTok, (laughs) Hearing the gospel in that context remakes the gospel into something to consume as a form of entertainment, even while it might be inspirational or powerful. And it really focuses us on the person who is almost certainly very attractive, wealthy, 
well-dressed. Yes. Yep. And true confession, I don't think I've ever seen TikTok. I'm really not That's even probably okay. actually on Instagram. <laughs> and in fact, and this is my weirdness, I've never seen a music video. I really? just kind of decided, yeah, I know. I mean, unless by accident somehow, but because I mm -hmm. love listening to music and I want it to engage my imagination. And so I kind of felt like if I see it though, now I've gone to musical, like musicals on stage and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I've seen <laughs> people mm -hmm. physically act out while they're singing, but, but I like to just listen and then mm. let my imagination go. So you're talking to a Luddite here and a lot of the social <laughs> media stuff, but I was still, but I really, I want to affirm, I think what, uh, it made a lot of sense to me that how I perceive the gospel message with my senses will very much affect how my mind understands its, its relative weight in my life. And mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. You've mentioned Graham a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, when I got to that chapter, I kind of <laughs> held my breath because he's a hero. I'm going to say celebrity. <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. going to say hero mm -hmm. to me. And I was just worried that maybe there would be more bad news I'd have to focus on. But you do a great job explaining Graham in his context, right? And pointing to the ways that he did try to keep his spiritual health. So could you talk a little bit about the things that he did to try and lessen the impact of his of his fame or mm -hmm. celebrity. And especially, I was so intrigued to hear your discussion, read your discussion about the Billy Graham rule, mm -hmm. which it has been used as a bit of a uh, bludgeon in my life. Right. And, it, and wrongly, as it turns out, because there's a lot mm -hmm. more going on with that. So anyway, yeah. talk to us a little bit about Billy Graham, how he tried to keep his spiritual health, because mm -hmm. we, we can learn from that. So yes, I... Also, I'm a fan of Billy Graham. I don't know if I would say he's a hero, but I have so much appreciation for his ministry and was exposed. I knew who he was as a young teenager. My parents invited me. They were going to see him at one of his crusades. I declined because I was in a rebellious stage, but <laughs> now regret that I did not go. But And I truly believe that he lived out his ministry and the rest of his life with integrity. He and his closest crusade leaders and confidants saw really early on as the crusades were growing and they were getting a lot of press in the newspapers and hordes of people were coming to the crusades. They saw how intoxicating that could be. And so they the story goes as they sat down in a hotel room together, four or five men in Modesto, California, and created this Modesto Manifesto. And most conversations about that manifesto tend to stop at the Billy Graham rule, what we now call the Billy Graham rule, which was that they all agreed to never meet alone with a woman who wasn't their wife. And you and I and probably lots of listeners have experienced the ways that this rule can be wielded in demoralizing, dehumanizing, weird ways. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But as I was researching this manifesto, just realizing, actually, they didn't stop with this rule. They put into place all sorts of rules about financial transparency. So they agreed to never kind of collect funds at the Crusades in these kind of 
moments that could be manipulative or very emotionally charged. Billy Graham's salary would be set by a board. They put into place kind of a board of directors and other groups that could offer accountability. They agreed to work with local churches and pastors, so they never wanted to come in and denigrate the local church. It was always about building up the local church and trying to direct crusade attendees to join a local body of believers. And then Graham himself invested in institutions, like dozens of institutions that didn't carry his name. He might have played a minor role. He played a role in helping to found Christianity today. But just the significance of investing in institutions that are not all about you, that you can kind of help to form, but then can live on far beyond your own lifetime. Yes, yes. So I think it's probably the case that there were elements of Graham's ministry that were less than ideal. I think of the fact that he travel, he was traveling so much, being on the road so much. He obviously reflected later on in his life about the temptations of aligning yourself with political leaders and how you could be used and taken advantage of. But I think that Modesto Manifesto really shows this kind of prescient wisdom. We see the temptation to start believing our own hype, to use this attention at the Crusades to ingratiate ourselves. How can we resist that before we get too far in and find that it's actually really intoxicating. Yeah. So yeah. I have a lot of respect for Graham in that regard. And I wish that, I think there are lots of great conversations to be had about the Billy Graham rule, but I also wish that we were talking about the other elements of the manifesto and what we can learn from them today. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In our remaining couple of minutes here, I do want to talk about your chapter on publishing. You mentioned that earlier, and I, w I would like to kind of offer, should I say, maybe a buyer beware service to the readers by just kind of showing, okay, this is what it looks like. Publishers adding jet fuel to the celebrity situation that we have. And nevertheless, of course, you are one of, I mean, you're in that Mm -hmm. field. So talk a little bit about why you think uh, the publishing, what the publishing world is doing well and why you're committed to that. But then also, what are some of the very real problems? Because mm -hmm. this, the average uh, listener to this podcast and like myself, we don't know about that world, but it affects us nonetheless. So I wrote a chapter critiquing a lot of Christian publishing but I also recognize the irony <laughs> yes. in writing a book with a Christian publisher critiquing Christian book publishing. So the way that I have navigated that is just to come back to this very basic belief that I that is authentic, which is that books can change lives. <clears throat> the printed right. word can change lives. The ability right. to communicate a message or information in that medium is can be a great spiritual benefit to your readers. What's happened in the last 20 or so years is that half of all Christian book publishers are now owned by kind of mainstream multinational conglomerates where they're businesses. And it's not wrong in and of itself to be a business and to create profit. But if the bottom line is driving 
the kinds of books that get contracted and published. And we know that celebrity sells. If you look at the New York Times bestseller nonfiction list celebrity, of course, Christian book publishers are going to feel pressure to take on books where the author has some kind of name recognition. I think that's a perfectly fine consideration if there are other considerations at work, like the quality of writing, the timeliness of the message. It's the problem is problems creep in when celebrity and platform kind of trump other questions. So, so many author hopefuls will say, I have a great message. I believe in my writing, but I could never get past the platform question because I only have so many followers. By contrast, someone who has tons of social media followers, but may not have that much of an idea <laughs> for a book, will get a contract. Yeah. They, because the publisher will say, we'll figure out the idea and the writing later. What we know is that a book with this person's name on it will sell. Yeah. So I think there needs to be a rebalancing and kind of putting questions of platform in their proper place. It's not that we're going to start publishing only obscure mon monks and nuns who are totally cut off from the rest of the world. But really, we let questions of platform and profitability outweigh other questions that really should be at the forefront in Christian publishing and kind of values-based publishing. Yeah, yeah. As I was reading your book, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. As I was reading your book, I was thinking of this movie that came out in 2009 called Julie and Julia. Mm -hmm. Do you happen to remember that? With It was about Julia Child. Meryl Streep did a great job. And Amy Adams was this Julie Powell who had written a blog who, trying to go through all of the recipes in Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking going through it all in in a year. And I remember both loving the movie and also being very frustrated with the character of Julie Powell as someone who isn't really doing things, isn't really doing anything on her own, but just mm. being derivative, right? That Julia Childs created something hmm. truly amazing in the Mastering the Art of French Cooking. It was, I, it changed how people thought about cook, but Julie Powell, she just tried to do those recipes and be just sort of following somebody else's directions in a limited kind of space, i.e. a small apartment, but then also a limited amount of time. And she just seems so self-absorbed. And I, I mean, wondered, where's fame? Like Julia Childs was passionate. Mm. Julia Child was passionate about cooking and wanting just to grow in mm. that area. And she became famous. And Julie Powell seemed like she just was sort of unhappy and wanted to be noticed. Is that? Mm. And so did the blog to get noticed. I don't know Julie Powell, and I feel bad if I've, I don't mean to hurt her feelings or anything along these lines at all. I'm just saying how, but, how they did the movie. That's all I saw. I've never read the book or anything. Is that kind of what you're getting at with fame and celebrity? It's interesting. So that example, I think, is a really good articulation of the difference between fame and celebrity. And how easy it is to manufacture celebrity yes, in yes. the age of the internet and social media 
And I can't speak to Julie Powell's writing skills or whether she, in fact, mastered the art of French cooking, which is a feat in and of itself. But like, as you said, Lynn, it's derivative of this original, truly creative, brilliant, original way of thinking about cooking and food. So I think that's actually a really good distillation of the difference between fame and celebrity and how easy it is to get a book deal <laughs> yes, based on a kind of manufactured appearance of importance or gravitas. Yes. Compared to Julie Child, who had a lot of trouble mm. getting her book right. published. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a excellently acted movie. So... For those who are looking for something to watch. I mean, our... it's Meryl Streep. It's so. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I think Amy Adams does yes. a fabulous job. And I mean, it's all good that way. But it, yeah, it just, it had a real important message relative as well to, to your book that's coming out. But I want to end on a promising note. And your book does as well. So I don't want to leave our readers without something to to hope for and to, it not to fix. And you make it very clear. This is not a do these 10 things and we're all we're all good but you point to a couple of important important what should we say safeguards hmm. to keep us from going down this path can you talk to us a little bit about those so i mean <laughs> this is the right christian answer to everything which is jesus but in some ways i think examining the life of christ as right. we read about it in the gospels is such a powerful reminder. I mean, of course, Jesus was known. His name was, people wanted to come hear him speak. Whether they liked what he had to say or not, he amassed some kind of following. But we also read that he frequently chose obscurity, chose to be away from the crowds, the people who he kind of let in, so to speak, in his inner circle was very small. There's something so unglamorous. I mean, yes, that's a good word. <laughs> so unglamorous about Jesus's earthly ministry and, of course, the way that his earthly life came to an end. And, of course, Paul goes on to talk about this truly unthinkable inversion of power that we see on the cross. Yes. And this reminder, I think, for all of us who desire to follow Christ is to choose to go lower when the world says go higher. To yes. Choose yeah. To get quieter when the world says get louder. And it is a tension for anyone who I believe is genuinely called to a ministry where they're called to write and speak. But at least being aware of the temptations of social power, I think some of us are tempted to think it's Christian ministry, so it's all justified without thinking about how the limelight and the attention and people who want us to sign their books changes us or can change us unless we're really intentional getting honest with God and people who really know us about how that is affecting our hearts and our spirits. One of the things, I mean, you talk about humility, which rolls off our tongues as Christians. We should all be humble. But you also talk about humiliation. And I was so glad to see that because 
at the time of the first century when the New Testament was written and Paul writes down that lovely Christ hymn in Philippians 2, and he talks about Christ's humiliation. That's There was no virtue of humbleness in the ancient world. It didn't, yeah, it was about humiliation. That, that's what they're describing when, they're, when they describe Jesus's death. A free male was one who was in control. Hmm. And Jesus demonstrates a lack of, he releases control. He allows others to control him, including at crucifixion. And that, that was not a virtue in the ancient world. They talk about, Paul in Romans 8 talks about endurance as a, mm. and perseverance as a Christian virtue. And it is for sure, but it was not a Greco-Roman virtue. It was a Jewish virtue, but not a Greco-Roman virtue. Endurance, like a woman in labor, is someone who faces often physical pain in their body and just has to put up with it, can't control it. And as I was thinking about this idea of humility and humiliation that you point to so rightly, I contrasted that with another characteristic of celebrity that you bring out, which is this need for control. Hmm. And, you know, hmm. how the celebrity, that's part of the bullying, right? That's part of hmm. the, I'm above the law. I have all this control. And so your, your answer of let's look at Jesus is really the right one. <laughs> I mean, it really is. And let his example really mm. sink in. You also talk about ordinary faithfulness. I love that. I love that phrase, ordinary faithfulness. That's the new narrative, right? That's the, yeah. I think that's what you're trying to cast in this last, all through the book, but especially in the last chapter. We need this new story of okay. ordinary faithfulness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really believe whether or not I write more books, whether or not they sell, whatever I could potentially point to at the end of my life as ministry success, quote unquote, will just pale in comparison to how I am experienced by the people who know me and love me. Yeah. And so yep. even in writing about ordinary faithfulness, there is a there's a check for the writer. But I just think about the people who are the most brilliant icons of Christian faithfulness to me, and they are not known. Their names are not recognized. They are not on social media. They are people like my parents who have faithfully served each other and their church for 40 years and don't know how to use Twitter and don't care, <laughs> but just this hidden, I think hidden faithfulness and that God sees what other people can't see. Yeah. And do we really believe that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's not about success. It's about faithfulness. Yes. Yeah. And oh, that's a, that's a beautiful picture to end on. It really does frame the gospel message that who, those who know us best will be those who testify to to our to how faithful we were to what God has asked us God asked us to do. I'm very excited about this book, Celebrities for Jesus. I found it just so helpful, thought provoking, and hopeful mm -hmm. at the at the end and instructive. And I'm so glad, Caitlin, that you wrote it and that you joined us on the Alabaster Jar. And all the best. I hope a lot of people read it, not because I want you to be a celebrity, but because I think it will be a blessing. It'll be a blessing to, to those who read it. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Lynn. I really enjoyed our conversation. 
Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of the Alabaster Jar. If you enjoyed our conversation with Caitlin Beatty, we've linked her website in today's description so that you can learn more about her work and order a copy of her newest book, Celebrities for Jesus. Be sure to share, subscribe, and join us back here next week for a brand new episode of the Alabaster Jar.